this final speaker is speaking about an issue. We brought her here today because we believe that the issue she works on is going to be one of the biggest issues of the 2010s. It's gonna be the issue that we look back on in 70 years and say, I cannot believe that they didn't solve it until then. And um, she runs the Prison Studies Project, where she teaches a, at prisonstudiesproject.org, you can check it out. She teaches a Harvard Sociology Junior Tutorial inside Norfolk and Framingham State Prisons. Inside there with Harvard students, BU students, and, and uh, people who are incarcerated. Uh, she's uh, taught courses in a number of prisons, including Sing Sing. Her final talk tonight for Harvard Thinks Big is a truly big thought. Act big, dare to see, Dr. Kaya Stern. Thank you and good evening. I am so grateful to be here. Before I focus on acting big and daring to see, I ask that you join me in a brief moment of silence. If you are willing, close your eyes and imagine a 16-year-old male who has a scar on his face and was found guilty of murder in the second degree. Let us be still and quiet together. Thank you. In the spirit of Harvard Thinks Big, I offer you three stories. Each one reflects different ways that we render each other invisible, are blind to the ways we are connected and asleep to our own power as agents of change. The first story is about Diego, the 16-year-old who I asked you to imagine. I met him at the maximum security prison where I entered during college. He was tried as an adult convicted of a felony B murder and sentenced with 25 years to life. While questions of guilt and innocence are important, this story is about how we regard the so-called other. Diego enters the convenience store with the intention to steal money from the cash register. He pushes one fist through his sweatshirt pocket to make it look like he has a gun. To protect himself, the manager of the store draws his own weapon which is real, and in a blink, Diego ducks, and another person is shot and killed. In the prison's welcome center, Diego is stripped. His body is sprayed with chemicals to kill any possible lice. Then he is hosed down and forced to shave his face and skull. He doesn't know how to use a razor. He was so scared that his hand trembled as he held the blade, and before he realizes it, he has cut deep into his own flesh. That's how Diego got the scar on his face. Then he is shackled and cuffed. There is no more pressing human rights crisis, no more urgent spiritual crossroads or threat to democracy than our inability to recognize the dignity of our fellow human beings. The prison setting is but one manifestation of how we deny full humanity to certain members of our community. We are living in a crisis of mass imprisonment. What do I mean? For most of the 20th century, imprisonment in the United States was rare. One in 1,000 people was behind bars on any given day. 
Now one in 31 Americans, more than seven million people is in jail, in prison, on probation or parole. And that one in 31 does not include all of the folks in immigration prisons, prisons operated by private companies or the military outside of the US, nor does it account for the thousands upon thousands of children, some as young as seven years old, locked behind bars across our nation. The US has more people incarcerated and a higher, uh, more people in prison and a higher incarceration rate than any other nation. More than Russia, South Africa, Mexico, Iran, India, Australia, Brazil, and Canada combined. Our national affliction to punish constitutes an apartheid that is social, economic, and racial. The vast majority of people are in prison for nonviolent, drug-related offenses, have less than a ninth grade formal education, and were born and raised in urban communities of concentrated disadvantage. They enter prison when all other social institutions have failed them. They enter in the name of justice and usually end up with wounds even deeper than visible scars. So what do we do? For as long as we tolerate poverty and live in fear, Americans are complicit in the cycle of crime and punishment. And in order to change the world in which we live, in order to interrupt the cycle, we must understand it. Our hunger to punish is rooted, I believe, in our legacy of traditional religious ideology, an ideology that assumes violence is redemptive and the one who has, has transgressed is a non-being, as one exiled from God and therefore not fully human or eligible for the rights we automatically grant those we do count human. Theologian Walter Wink's thesis is key to my thinking. We are mesmerized in scripture global politics, even children's cartoons, by the myth that violence will redeem us if we can just destroy the bad guy, Judas, Osama bin Laden, Brutus, we believe that we will be redeemed, safe, and free. Yet a myth that denies dignity and exalts violence betrays the scriptural mandate to align ourselves with those who are suffering as if theology itself is imprisoned, our crisis reveals profound alienation at every level. Alienation from ourselves, which often creates pathways of addiction and injustice, evident uh, alienation from community, evidenced in abiding fear of the other, the terrorist, people who are poor, queer, elderly, brown-skinned, mentally ill, not saved, not chosen, and spiritual alienation in which traditional theology is at odds with itself. My second story is more personal and is a kind of confession. For seven years, I waited tables in New York City restaurants. Simple restaurant ethics, bread and water are to be provided as a matter of course. Each time someone broke the bread I had offered and neglected to see me, each time a person quenched her thirst without looking me in the eyes, I noticed. 
I know this because eye contact is an opportunity to face the life before you, to pause and to recognize sanctity. Why do we so often turn away from the other, from ourselves? Why is it so terrifying to see? Research shows that two people rarely gaze into each other's eyes without speech for more than 10 seconds unless one is an infant, they are lovers, or are preparing to fight. To me, theology, or the study of what we call God, makes most sense when it is lived and is as accessible as eye contact. The most common blasphemy is not to see the human being in the eyes before us. Confession. I learned more about humanity serving people than I did in any seminar in graduate school. My third story is about all of us. It is inspired by a piece I heard on NPR about scarcity. How many of you have ever played musical chairs? If so, please raise your hands. Look around, look around, keep your hands up. See how we fill this room. Thank you. Imagine you are a child. You're at your friend's birthday party. You're wearing your party shoes. You have a present to give. You see a chocolate cake in the kitchen and are so glad to be there. And then a grown-up announces that you will now play musical chairs. I learned the rules of that game quickly. I was slick and aggressive. I would move really slowly and then shove. <laughs> what are we teaching our children? We are teaching scarcity and competition. There are many losers and only one winner, and there is never enough. There are not enough resources for everyone to enjoy. Well, there really are enough. In fact, you can see the abundance of chairs piled in the corner of the room. There are enough resources. You just can't have access to them. Particular people are denied basic access to what already belongs to them by virtue of their dignity as human beings. Clean water, food, shelter, education. Let us do even more than think big. Let us shed the illusion of scarcity in the face of waste and greed. Let us resist the tyranny of relational amnesia. The one in shackles is our kin. The waiter who serves us is our kin. Connect with each other. And BTW, I don't mean texting, I mean eye contact. Biology teaches us that we are profoundly connected when we pay close attention to each other. A little neuroscience plug, please go home and Google mirror neurons. They are the very mechanism by which we share in each other's lived experience when we dare to see. With crisis comes opportunity, and you, students at Harvard University, have staggering amounts of social capital and therefore immense responsibility to shift the rules of musical chairs, to flip the paradigm, to change the games we play in this broken world. Ella Baker reminds us the struggle is eternal, the tribe carries on, excuse me, the, the, the tribe increases 
somebody else carries on. That somebody is you. So I leave you with three questions. As members of the tribe, what will you do to resist injustice born of dehumanization? When someone pours you water, will you look that person in the eyes? And how will you write the rules for a new economy in which you maximize and share your resources? Act big. Thank you so much.